0: Good morning, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and again, this is the third Sunday in Advent, a season during which Christians observe and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In this Advent, we're kicking off a sermon series through First and Second Samuel, uh, which tell the story of the rise of King David, and we are looking at these books through the lens of Jesus' birth story and ministry. We're studying the rise and reign of King David, which foreshadows the, the birth and ministry of King Jesus. In week one, the story opened with a barren woman named Hannah. Hannah's barrenness was representative of Israel's barrenness, but the Lord was working to change all that. Hannah prayed for a son, and the Lord gave her a son. According to 1 Samuel 1.20, Hannah named her son Samuel, saying, I have asked For him from the Lord. So Hannah asked for a son, and the Lord gave her Samuel. In week two, we looked at the song Hannah sang in response to Samuel's birth. With the birth of Samuel, God was declaring to Hannah, God was declaring to the nation of Israel that their sorrow and barrenness were being turned to joy and fruitfulness. God was going to bring a social revolution to the nation of Israel by raising up a new king. And this week, we jump ahead to chapter 8, which features Samuel now as an old man, and so a lot has taken place. So for the sake of context, I think it's important for us to review uh, the chapters in between last week and this week. So in chapter 3, the Lord calls Samuel to be his prophet, to be his mouthpiece. In chapter 4, the Philistines defeat Israel in battle and they capture the ark of God. The ark represented God's presence. In chapters 5 and 6, the Lord plagues the Philistines until they return the ark back to Israel. And in chapter 7, the Philistines attack Israel yet again, but the Lord defeats them. So, in essence, these chapters show God functioning as the king of Israel. As the king of Israel, God appoints Samuel to be his mouthpiece. As the king of Israel, God fights Israel's battles. And as the king of Israel, God defeats Israel's enemies. And here here we are faced with a a troubling reality for modern enlightened people. At certain points throughout human history, the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible, our God, has condoned violence. And this has been the subject of much criticism, and so as we set out on this journey through First and Second Samuel, which, which feature a good deal of warfare, I thought I might take a moment to try to answer the criticism, all right? So atheist Richard Dawkins referred to God as a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Now, obviously, I, I disagree with Richard Dawkins, but to be honest, I do wrestle with some of the violence in the Bible. I think a lot of Christians do, and that's okay. I just want us to pause here and and try to see this from God's point of view. Why all the violence? First of all, we should establish that God is God. He doesn't change. He has not grown increasingly lovable and politically correct over time. However, we must also remember that our our redemption has unfolded throughout history. God's character has never changed. God's purpose has never changed, but the story we're living has evolved. And from time to time, that story transfigures. An old world is shed and a new world emerges. In other words, history is moving towards a destination, and the Bible clearly teaches that violence will one day come to an end. That God's desire. In the days of Samuel, God intended for Israel to welcome the nations into the household of God. That is so important to remember. God intended for Israel to welcome the nations in. In Isaiah 56, God says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That is God's heart. Israel was called to be distinct because the nations were supposed to come and worship the God-King of Israel. In chapter 4, when the Philistines capture the Ark of God, they are clearly being given an opportunity to repent and to worship Him. The Philistines witnessed His glory, His holiness, His power, but they refused to recognize Him as their king. In chapter 5, God called them to bow down and worship. But instead, they harden their hearts, and they send the ark back to Israel. God was right there in their midst, and they cast him out. As it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But at the same time, the Lord is guiding history on toward its final destination. God wanted to give Israel the land he had promised them, a land where they could dwell securely, where they could build a a house of prayer for all peoples. The Philistines were given an opportunity to comply. Instead, they rebelled, and the Lord took action. And perhaps you'll say that that's great, but Israel had no right to lay claim to another nation's land. No, but Israel's God did If Israel's God is the one true creator God, as the Bible claims, that changes the ethical nature of what takes place in the days of Samuel. God was not taking land that belonged to others. He was taking back land that belonged to him. And he was cleansing that land of wickedness because his heart was for the nations. Because the God King of Israel wanted to set up a dining room table, so to speak, in the midst of the nations where they could come and dine with him. But first, he needed to renovate Israel into a welcoming, hospitable home, a house of prayer for all peoples. God's heart was for the nations, but if the nations were going to reject that renovation project and try to burn the house down, God was not going to watch that happen. Today, God dwells in the church, which is fundamentally an international institution. God's welcoming, hospitable home is everywhere, and it's right here, it's us. And so we may buy land and buildings in order to gather together, but we don't need land and buildings in order to be this hospitable people of God, in order to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And so we live in a different time a different stage in the unfolding plan of redemption. We're, we're not talking about two different gods with two different purposes. We're talking about one God with one purpose, except that purpose has matured and continued to unfold. Now, that's not all that could be said there, and, and I know that's tough. Um, there are good resources out there, and if you'd like, contact a pastor, reach out. We'd love to point you that, in that direction. But I digress. Here's the big picture of what chapters 3 through 7 are telling us. God is the king of Israel, the only king Israel needs. He can fight their battles. He can secure for them a land in which to dwell and prosper. And that's the backdrop for chapter 8. Here in chapter 8, Israel asks for a king. uh, Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They said, Samuel, this isn't working. All of the other nations have a human king. We want a human king. It's not enough to have a God king. In fact, it's kind of weird. We want to be ruled by a man. This This was an act of apostasy, This was an abandonment of God. Israel was called to be distinct from the nations, but here they're asking to be like the nations. They're effectively saying, we're tired of being God's special people. Make us like everyone else. Despite everything God did for them, the people of Israel were often, often prone to grumble and complain. Verse 6 But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel was Israel's judge, by the way. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God says, Samuel, they're rejecting me. The people are rejecting me. I'm not, I'm going to give them what they want. You can still trust me. I'm still in control. I'm just going to need you to offer them a warning. That warning starts in verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Basically, Samuel tells them, this king is going to tax you into oblivion. The Lord your God was happy to live in a tent. This guy's going to want a palace. You will have to work extra hard to put food on his table. He's going to recruit your sons and grandsons into his army. You want a king to fight your battles. This king is going to end up being your enemy. And in the end, you're going to wish you had been content with the Lord as your king. God was a giver king. This guy was going to be a taker. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we, we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. You're catching the irony here, right? We want a king to to judge us and fight our battles. They already had that. Not only was God the best king they could have asked for, but Samuel himself was a faithful prophet and judge who had taught the people of Israel to walk in righteousness. So what happens? Israel is given a king. God gives them what they want. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, God gives them what they want as an act of judgment. Think back to what Hannah said when when she named Samuel. I have asked for him from the Lord. Well, the name of Israel's first king is Saul, whose name means asked. Saul is the king Israel asked for, and Saul is the king Samuel warned them about. Saul was faithful for a while, but he ends up ruling just like Samuel said he would. And so in the end, the Lord grants this request as an act of judgment. And all God's people said, Oh, to have a righteous king. Oh, to have a righteous king. And next Sunday, on Christmas Eve, we'll be introduced to two kings. The first king is King David. The Bible says that David walked before God in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart. David was a righteous king. And yet even David failed. David took the throne shortly after King Saul, and that means King Saul was the king Israel asked for. King David was the king Israel actually needed. God gave them King Saul as an act of judgment. God gave them King David as an act of covenant love. The second king is King Jesus. Let's read Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6. It'll be behind me. And so when Jesus came on the scene, this was God reclaiming his throne. The Lord has taken back his throne, and the righteous king also happens to be God. God's authority is no longer mediated through a human being. Jesus is God. Jesus is our king. God is our king. We have a righteous king. Long ago, our God-King defeated our enemies on the battlefield, and now our God-King has come to earth to defeat our enemies on a cross. The same righteous God-King who once exercised judgment over the Philistines has taken that judgment upon himself because God's heart is for the nations. The people of God have the true King for which every other King is a mere shadow We have a righteous king. What does that mean for us? Well, first of all, I think we should learn from Israel's mistakes. In particular, we should learn to be grateful for the righteous king that we already have. We should stop our grumbling and trust the Lord. One distinguishing mark, I think, between faithful people and unfaithful people is this. Faithful people lament, and unfaithful people complain. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel is complaining. Elsewhere in the Bible, we find men and women faithfully lamenting their circumstances and the brokenness of the world. Think back to, to 1 Samuel 1. Hannah's prayer is a faithful lament. In a sense, lamenting is just taking a complaint and turning it into a prayer of, an honest prayer of trust. Lament transforms complaining into worship. Because complaining is all about you. You being in the right, you speaking your mind typically to anyone but God. Lamenting is about God, you casting your anxieties upon Him, you trusting Him. For complainers, the grass is always greener anywhere but here. And for lamenters, the promise of greener grass is a source of hope and contentment today. Lament looks forward to what has been promised. In the midst of brokenness, it yearns and it aches. It earnestly seeks the coming of God's kingdom. It doesn't say, why is this happening to me, or what have I done to deserve this? It says, how long, O Lord, until you fulfill your promise? Anyone can complain. Christians can Lament. We can talk to our God King about our circumstances and ask him to change them because he is our loving Heavenly Father. Because he is trustworthy and empathetic. Christians can affirm that suffering is real and significant and yet never without hope. In fact, as as citizens of God's kingdom, grumbling is irrational, grumbling is insanity. When we grumble and complain, we are not seeing the world and our place within it according to reality. What's actually true is that God has blessed us beyond measure. So grumbling is evidence that functionally we believe He's holding out on us, right? So let's turn our complaints into laments. Let's, Let's cultivate thankful hearts. One really practical way to do that is to pray through the Psalms. I know as well as you do that it is hard to walk by faith, to walk in faith. It's hard to look at the brokenness all around us, the disappointment and the loss and the sickness and the death and to trust that God is in control. But here's the truth. We cannot simultaneously grumble and believe the gospel. You can't do those things at the same time. Truly believing the gospel leaves room for lament, but no room for complaining. Rather than complaining, my boss is a jerk. Mine is not. It's just an example. Turn it into prayer and worship. Lord, I'm struggling at work. I need your grace, and I need your spirit to work in the lives of my coworkers. Rather than complaining, Houston traffic is the worst, turn it into prayer and worship. Lord, teach me to use this time wisely. Help me to exercise grace towards these maniacs on the road. (laughs) I know they bear your image. Rather than complaining, oh goody, another Christmas with the in-laws. My in-laws were here at the nine o'clock, actually, um... Turn it into prayer and worship. Lord, prepare me to be a witness, to exercise generosity towards others, to celebrate the coming of my righteous God King in every word and deed and attitude of my heart. Here's a fun one. Rather than complaining, not my president, turn it into prayer and worship. Lord, may your kingdom come here in the United States. May your kingdom come in our world. You are the only true righteous God King. So wake us up and rule over us. This Christmas, every Christmas, we have so much to be thankful for. We have our righteous King. I look forward to celebrating his birth with you next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, you are our God-King. Thank you for reigning over us with wisdom. Thank you for executing justice, for executing righteousness, for saving us, for delivering us, for allowing us to dwell secure in Christ, to prosper in Christ. You are our righteousness. Thank you for Jesus, born into this world, God incarnate, Come to save us from our sins. It's in his name we pray, amen.